You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. That didn't seem like it had the energy that I'm used to from you, Kyle. Well... You know how it is. Uh, you know how it is. Sometimes just you're sleepy. Um, we've been exploring Genesis 12 through 50 this season on Knowing Faith. Today we find ourselves with Joseph in Egypt. So we were we met Joseph in Genesis 37. In Genesis 38, we cut away from the story of Joseph to hear about his brother, Judah, and Tamar, who was more righteous than Judah. And then we cut back into the story of Joseph. And now he's not in a pit. He's not in his father's house. Uh, he's not with the... Uh, slave traders. He's with Potiphar. He's in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar is a officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. He's an Egyptian. Uh, and uh, uh, Potiphar has secured Joseph from the uh, the Ishmaelites, the Midianites who sold him there in Egypt. And it says in verse two, and this is going to be significant, the Lord was with Joseph. Mm-hmm. He became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And this frames really the rest of Joseph's story in Egypt. And now there is a blip on that radar. There's a setback, but like Joseph is about to go on a trajectory and he's going to have to encounter a little bit more darkness. He's going to encounter a different pit, but he is headed towards success in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And he's immediately granted success in Potiphar's house. This is kind of a Midas touch that Joseph has in Potiphar's house, isn't it? Did you just say a modest touch? A Midas touch. Okay, thanks. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> I heard modest touch. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> uh, although that might take on some resonances when we get to the story of mm-hmm. Potiphar's wife. Oh, uh, there oh, it is. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but no, a Midas touch. Joseph is successful in Potiphar's house, right? Yes. Says Jesse, he's found favor in his sight. He attended like it's him. Evident, and, like you can yeah. tell when you're around him. Oh, things go well for this guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It says that his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And because of that, Potiphar increases Joseph's standing in his house. He gives him more and more. He entrusts to him more and more. And Joseph is an overseer. Now, how's that for a little bit of? full circle, right? What Mm -hmm. Joseph's brothers despised in Joseph is what Potiphar is celebrating in Joseph. Mm -hmm. uh, Jen, you've talked about how through Genesis, we often see that the uh, pagan is oftentimes more righteous than the the one who's in the covenant house. And here you see Potiphar uh, dealing uh, bountifully with Joseph in a way that his brothers had not. Yeah, and I think, you know, you got to ask, why do we have the story of Potiphar entrusting Joseph with things? Why not just have the story that's coming, you know, where we know that Pharaoh will ultimately entrust him with things? And I actually think we're seeing an illustration of the New Testament principle of he who is faithful in little, you know, knows how to be faithful in much. So this is like a little intro story that's setting up the pattern of what we'll see play out in a larger way um, further along. And you actually see that a lot in these stories um, where you get a a smaller version of the story and then a bigger version that comes along later. Um, So it's kind of cool to pay attention to those things. And then we find out that Joseph is not just good at his work, he's also... Handsome. He's a a handsome guy. We keep running into these handsome people, these beautiful people in the Old Testament who, uh, you know, are put in very interesting situations. Situations. He's easy on the eye. 
He's handsome in form and appearance is what it says. And after time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused uh, and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master is no concern about anything. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph takes the righteous way here. Says she spoke to Joseph day after day. So this woman is, she's chasing after Joseph. Mm-hmm. She's petitioning him. She's uh, uh, she's persistent in this request. And um, this is again one of those things we've seen in these stories where like things stay good, but they don't stay good for a long time. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like all these stories, some brokenness enters in and starts trying to wreak havoc. And uh, Joseph refuses her. It seems like he continues to refuse her. And then in verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. So now it's becoming, it seems like this is a different kind of interaction. She's becoming more physical, more demanding. And it's come to a decision point because mm-hmm. she is like basically grabbing Joseph now and saying, lie with me. Can I just, can I make one point here? Um, You know, those of you who are familiar with the wisdom tradition, you know that there's this motif of Lady Folly uh, in the book of Proverbs. And she acts like Potiphar's wife does. Like she calls out in the streets and she's trying to lure people in and she's very active in her adulterous behaviors. And I think it's significant having just come off of the story of Tamar. This is one of the reasons in the last episode when we talked about Tamar, I wanted to emphasize that in that story, though Tamar wears the garb of the prostitute, she's actually presented to us after the motif of Lady Wisdom and that it is um, her, that she does not act upon, she does not call out um, to Judah. Judah is the one who initiates. And so here we see Lady Folly in the next chapter who is calling out and trying to entrap and ensnare the righteous man. And yet Joseph continues to resist. And it says, as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, because he flees, he runs away. She called to the men of the household and said to him, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. As soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me, fled, got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. She told him the story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me, fled out of the house. So she falsely accuses Joseph. Mm-hmm. And again, a, a garment, like a, a piece of clothing is at, is at the center of part of Joseph's story. So if you remember mm-hmm. from a few episodes ago in his life, he's given this long coat, which makes him this lord or overseer over his brothers. He's the one who has authority and he's in control. His brothers strip it from him and dunk it in some blood and try to deceive his father about his death and said he's in a pit and sold into slavery. Now, obviously in Potiphar's home, he's probably wearing nice clothes again. And again, mm-hmm. his garment is taken from him in order to demonstrate or try to show that uh, that he has done this deceitful act or this wicked act with her, even though he hasn't. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be another garment story that that we can save here for uh, another episode. But these garments are, are central to this to this story of him being clothed with honor, uh, and then somehow him being disrobed, stripped. Mm-hmm. stripped of that honor 
by those who are acting and working against him. Well, and we're seeing laughter come back into the story. And, you know, laughter formed one function in the cycle of the Abraham and Sarah story and Isaac's name meaning laughter. But then if you remember, there was a scene where um, Abimelech sees Isaac and Rebecca laughing together. And that's mm-hmm. how he knows that they are actually husband and wife and not brother and sister. And it's a euphemism for them showing intimacy to each other. And so um, here we're seeing that being the way that laughter is used. She says he came in to laugh at. In other words, he's he's presenting himself sexually to us. And then he comes in and he um, comes into me to laugh at me, meaning she's saying he's the one who is making sexual advances when she says that. Absolutely. And the his master Potiphar is is angry about this, obviously, understandably, because he it appears that his wife has been like that. Joseph is trying to take advantage of his wife. So he believes his wife, and it says that uh, Joseph's master took him, put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. He was there in prison. But here's this phrase again, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper. So Joseph's standings, standings rise even in prison, right? Like mm-hmm. even in prison, because the Lord was with Joseph, he's granted favor in the eyes of the keeper of the prison. And basically he begins to manage and rule the, the other prisoners. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with him. This phrase mm-hmm. is being repeated over and over. Like, it's like the author is hitting us over the head with this idea. The Lord is with Joseph. Mm-hmm. Like the Lord is going to get Joseph where the Lord wants to take Joseph. And whatever he did, the Lord made him succeed. Now, we get to the introduction of two very interesting characters. We get the introduction of the cupbearer of the king and the baker. And I got to tell you, at this point, the story feels like Grimm's fairy tales to me. Like, <laughs> like I'm like, the cupbearer, the baker, is there a candlestick maker hanging out somewhere? You know, like, this just starts to feel like I'm in prison with a cupbearer and a baker, and they're having dreams, and I'm interpreting those dreams. But it is a fascinating story, and that's exactly what happens. Well, I do think is before we get into the dream cycle, we should see that the the contrast that's being set up for us between Joseph and Jacob. If you remember Jacob, when he has his dream, his dream, he says, uh, God has been with me all in this place, and I did not know it. And so the story of the Jacob cycle is God is with Jacob wherever he goes, but Jacob is kind of unaware You know, he's just kind of operating out of his own strength and according to his own plans. But in the case of Joseph, I think we're actually meant to see that Joseph himself is aware that the Lord is with him. Because if you notice the way that he responds to Potiphar's wife, he says, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He doesn't say against Potiphar. So he seems top of mind aware that the Lord is with him and it changes the way that he lives in the world. He chooses wisdom at every turn. And so now we're going to see him descend into the depths. We get to see what he looks like when he is pressed down um, to the uttermost. And we get the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. Except that that's not what we get. No, it's not what we get. What we get is we get uh, that Pharaoh is angry with these guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, it says he puts them in the custody of the house, the captain and the guard. The captain and the guard appointed Joseph to be with him. He attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed. Now, uh, Joseph sees them the next day and they're like, why? He's like, why are you downcast? They said, well, we've had dreams. There's no one to interpret them. Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell them to me. So 
the chief cupbearer and the baker tell him the dreams. And in the cupbearer's dream, he says, there was a vine before me. On the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossom shot forth. The clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, the interpretation is that in three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh is going to lift you up, to, uh, lift up your head, restore you to your office. You shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it's well with you. Um, so uh, that's what happens with the cupbearer. The baker, I'm sure now is like, okay, that sounds pretty good. Uh, let me tell Joseph my dream. Chief <laughs> Baker saw that the interpretation was favorable. He said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food uh, for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. Surprise! Uh, and hang you on a tree, <laughs> and the birds will eat the flesh from you. This—I feel like Joseph is trolling the baker. <laughs> like in three days, Pharaoh will also lift up your head from you. From you, like awesome. dot dot dot. It's like that's an important caveat here, ma'am. Um, and on the third day, that's exactly what happens. He restores the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet. The chief bearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So let me ask a question here. And I don't want us to go get too in the weeds here because Jen would say the point of the story, this is not the point of the story, but we're, we, have, we have interpretation of dreams happening here. Like I have dreams, uh, you know, uh, I think dreams are a pretty common occurrence. Uh, I know it's not the point of the story, but there are dreams being interpreted in this story Joseph is interpreting them. It's a huge part of what's going on with him. It's going to happen again with Pharaoh, which we're going to see in just a moment. If I'm a listener to this, I'm a listener to Knowing Faith, and I hear, well, Joseph's out there interpreting dreams. Should I immediately go back and be like, I need to keep a dream journal, write down everything I dream, interpret all these, JT? What do you think? If somebody came to you, JT, and said, hey, pastor, I'm having all sorts of dreams. I read in the Bible that Joseph is interpreting dreams uh, you're a pastor. You're a man after God's own heart, right? Interpret my dreams for me, pastor. What are you going to tell him? I would say dream interpretation belongs to God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but Joseph does. But Joseph does it. That's what Joseph he, said. He said well, that he is belongs that to is, God. That's exactly that what he is, said. That mm -hmm. is what he said. And then he went on and interpreted the dreams. Yeah. So I know there's also ministry, contemporary ministries that have lots of conversations around this. And for me, this is just not a central issue for the Christian faith. Uh, we're at a very different point in redemptive history here in Genesis. In Genesis, they don't have a revealed canonical word that we now currently have in scripture. That is not to say that God does not continue to prompt or use conversations, promptings, ideas, dreams, pictures to, to in some way, shape or form communicate with us. God is a speaking God and he, does, he delights in being in communion and communication with his children. But we have to remember that in terms of redemptive history here, this is not a prescriptive thing for those who have faith in Yahweh. It's a descriptive thing for this, for these people, specifically Joseph, who's going to interpret these dreams for these Egyptians. Uh, and it, it's also important to remember that almost always dreams in scripture have to do with something very specific about redemptive history, not mm -hmm. should I take that job or should I not do this? And so I tend to be of the opinion that we have to read 
scripture in its redemptive context. Here you have Moses has not written the law at the time that this has been written. The wisdom literature has not been written. The prophets, latter uh, prophets, major minor prophets have not been written. And the New Testament hasn't been written. The final word given to us, specifically the Lord Jesus Christ as God's final revealed word to us. So I think it's really important that, um, I'm not trying to dance around the issue, but that we hold some things with a closed fist. God has said in scripture and God has said in Christ. These other things, prophecy, revelation, dreams, Christians can hold them with an open hand, but yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question. What do you think, Jen? Well, I think, you know, there's actually, I don't know that a lot of Christians who subscribe to the idea of dream interpretation being something, you know, that's like a spiritual gift, I guess, for lack of a better term. I'm not always sure that they're aware that there's actually a whole practice of dream interpretation that exists just in secular culture. Right. um, That's based on psychology. So like that, you know, there are certain symbols and things that happen in dreams that just tend to mean the same thing is going on in people's subconsciousness. So like, for example, uh, if you have a dream about your teeth falling out, it usually is a sign that you're coming to terms with the aging process. And so uh, there are things like that that are just like generally recognized based on people who have kept dream journals, that they are a report from your subconscious of what you're processing. So can the Lord use a dream in the sense of like it's bringing something out um, that you've actually been thinking about at a level that's not top of mind when you're awake? Yeah, like I might be thinking more about my mortality after having a dream about my teeth falling out and that might make me reflect more on, you know, the word of God in a different way. Mm -hmm. But that's different than like a dream that's telling the future and so on and so forth. Um, So yeah, it's a pretty spicy topic to be honest. But I do think it's important for people to know that if they hear someone talking about Christian dream interpretation, that they should lay that up against just what's actually being taught like at your local community college about about dreams. That's just widely viewed as, you know, this is the, these are the patterns dreams fall into. Well, one thing that I would say though, for those, because I, I know people who are pretty into dream interpretation. Um, I think one of the things that we can miss is the, if, if we get too into that and that becomes kind of the primary avenue through which we're hoping to hear from God, it means we don't have to do the hard work of Bible literacy and spending time in the text and learning what the text says and seeing the beauty of the text. If you just have kind of a one way, you know, divine channel with God and it doesn't require you to be in scripture, I think mm-hmm. long term that'd be really problematic for your relationship with Jesus. Yep. And again, uh, we, we've hit it before, we've hit it today, but the note is it, it's probably not a good rule of thumb to build out hardline prescriptive ministries from descriptive narrative passages. Okay. But we have to talk about these dreams because first of all, they're vocationally appropriate, which I kind of like, like they're each dreaming about work. Yep. Um, but th- we've talked about how there are a lot of typo- typological things happening in this story. And um, and here you have uh, Joseph, who is an innocent man condemned, right? Mm-hmm. And he, he stands condemned between two guilty men. Uh-huh. Yep. Here we go. Okay. Uh, one of whom um, perishes and the other who is exalted. So basically one of them is spared in that moment, yep. uh, just as on the cross, you know, that Jesus turns to the thief next to him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. But another thing I'm noticing is, is that one of the, one of the vocations has to do with wine yeah. and the other has to do with bread. And in the moment that these two dreams are being presented to us, uh, Joseph's plea is that he would be remembered. Yep. yep. Come on. That's crazy. Yeah. 
It is really good. I mean, it's just another parallel. You, you were talking about it, Jen, that the story of Joseph has so many of these Christological, Christotelic allusions to it. And this one is, again, one that just feels very dense yeah. with, that, with that picture. Yeah, um, and to me, that's fascinating. Like, I, whether or not dreams are, you know, something from the Lord that we should try to interpret is a way less interesting question to me than, oh my gosh, how did all this get here? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I mean by the, that's a really good example of what I mean by the Bible literacy question is if mm-hmm. you missed what the text is actually trying to say, yeah. say okay, great. I, I guess I should just have a dream and see what God says. No, no, you're missing mm-hmm. the typology that's right in front of you in scripture. Yeah, yeah. Except he doesn't remember him. So is that supposed to be comforting? <laughs> yeah. I think it's cautionary. <laughs> <laughs> it is. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. So after two whole years, that's the next line. So two years go by. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So Pharaoh has a dream. And in Pharaoh's dream, he sees that there are these cows, seven cows. They're attractive and plump. They fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them. They stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. He awoke. He falls asleep. He dreams a second time. Behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. He sent call for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief bearer said to Pharaoh, I remember. Right? Like, he's basically saying like, hey, I remember when you were angry. And you sent us down into the pit, into the prison. There was a guy there. We had it, me and the the baker. We had dreams, and we went to this guy. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told them, he interpreted our dreams to us, and as he interpreted it to us, so it came about. So basically, he has the the the, the cupbearer remembers Joseph in light of Pharaoh's dreams. And we get the picture here that Pharaoh is really like. He is concerned about these dreams. Like he's getting everybody together. He's asking everybody, like, what does this dream mean? What does this dream mean? Uh, he is. He really wants to get to the bottom of this. So the cupbearer comes in with a very helpful solution at the time, which is, hey, there happens to be in your own prison a young Hebrew who seems to have a knack for interpreting dreams. Mm-hmm. So Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. When he had shaved himself, changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have a dream, and there is no one who could interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And he said, uh, he answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And Pharaoh tells him the dream. I'm not going to recount the dream again. It, it Curvy is cows, the, skinny cows, yep. plump heads of grain, yep. cruddy heads of grain. That's what happens. And Joseph says, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. Basically, these two dreams are saying the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. And he tells, I'm not going to read this word for word. He tells Pharaoh, 
you're about to have seven years of abundance, agrarian abundance mm -hmm. in particular. Like you're about to have seven years of a high, high yield and a high, high return on your crops, on your animals, all those things. But after those seven years are up, you're going to have seven years of famine. And so you need to prepare now. You need to gather all the food of these good years that are coming. You need to store up that grain under the authority of Pharaoh for good in the cities and let them keep it, that the food should be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are going to occur. So this is a very specific dream, very specific interpretation that has wide reaching implications for this part of the world. And you're going to find that out in what follows in the story because Egypt isn't just some, this famine is coming and it's going to affect everybody in the region. And Egypt's rise to prominence seems to be uniquely situated to the interpretation of this dream. I mean, they weren't, they weren't a slouch before, but they are about to become a hub in a big way uh, for their surrounding neighbors because of the interpretation of this dream. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Joseph, his stock rises exceptionally high when this happens, right? Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, basically where Potiphar had made him his lieutenant in his own household, Pharaoh is going to turn to Joseph and be like, okay, great. You're my second in command. Like you're the lieutenant for this 14-year project we're about to embark on. This is where it gets so great. Tell us why. Or are, you, are we ready to get into the next section? Go for it. Okay, so it says that um, he, so it says in verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? So Joseph has the spirit of God indwelling him. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You should be over my house and over, over my, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Is anyone paying attention? Are we paying attention to what's going on here? Mm -hmm. So this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Dove descends. Uh, okay, keep going. And then it says, um, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. So he's given authority. He clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. He is, he is basically treated as royalty. Yep. Um, and then he made him ride in his second chariot. And then this part, and they called out before him, bow the knee, um, would anyone like to take us to Philippians 2? At the name of Joseph, every knee shall bow. Then he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without you, your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. All authority is given to him. And then Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnoth paneah which means revealer of secrets. Hmm revealer of secrets, and he gave him in marriage. So it's, uh, it's this snapshot. Oh, and then, I mean, it goes on um, and talks about how he, you know, takes this fruitfulness and multiplication. He basically brings in the sheaves, so to speak. Um, and then um, it says in verse 56, so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. So he is exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh and then he becomes the source of bread for the entire world. Mm -hmm. Come on. That's so yeah, good. That's, yeah, that is incredible. Did I miss any? You got any more in there? <sighs> 
I mean, it really is. It, it it's unbelievable to think that, and and not just a, yeah, a source of bread, not just to the people of Israel, yeah, but to the world, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, it's going to continue, like it continues through the rest of the story. But if you're thinking, man, Jen sure is a genius with uh, typologies in the story of Joseph. I think I've mentioned this before, but um, Arthur Pink in his Gleanings in Genesis, that's the name of the book, Gleanings in Genesis, uh, goes through, I mean, I've given you just like a few. He's got way more than that, that he goes through, the the comparisons that he would draw. And um, I always say when I mention Arthur Pink and typology that sometimes he can kind of run away with it. Uh, but it's a really interesting uh, point to start at because he does have, he did apparently just have a really good mind for making all of these connections. And that book is available, you know, you can purchase it on Amazon, but I think there are also free online versions of it as well. That's awesome. It, yeah, it's his commentary on Genesis. I love it. If you read it before our next episode, you're going to know all of our spoilers. So all of our- you might want to hold off. <laughs> Well, uh, this is an incredible story and we're just kind of right in the middle of it. It's going to take some more turns though, because Mm -hmm. this famine is hitting all the land, not just Egypt. It's going to, you know, it's going to hit where his family lives. Mm -hmm. And Joseph is not a dummy. He sees this coming. Uh, And we're going to see this over the next few chapters that uh, it is going to be a really interesting part of the conversation to see how Joseph's family is going to be included in really the blessings of this provision uh, and how it's going to result in some reconciliation and restoration uh, for Joseph and his family. And so I hope that you'll continue to journey along with us as we move forward in this. It's a fantastic story and the Christological illusions are not done. There are more to come. So uh, you can join the conversation by finding us on social media at Knowing Faith Podcast, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can also find us on Patreon if you're interested in that. There's some exclusive stuff that's over there for our patrons. And you can find us at patreon.com slash knowingfaithpodcast. In our next episode, we'll continue to explore Joseph's journey in Egypt. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Grace and peace.